who knew came out and it made itself clear for everyone to stop and put shorts on and marvel at. I was in a meeting, I had jeans, jumper, and I took a coat, and there's a guy sat there with shorts and t-shirt. And I realized I'm not used to sun in March. What a blessing. But you know, even on the gloomiest, darkest winter's day, the sun is still there. Giving out the same light, giving out the same heat, otherwise we would live in a frozen darkness. That's probably not worth thinking about too much. It's just that on days like we've had this week, we kind of get the experience. We get to enjoy again. We get to realize, ah, that's what the sun is. That's what that big yellow ball of fire moving across the sky that God made it a word is. It's like its true nature is somehow revealed to us as we stand there or sit there and bask in its rays. And actually, this morning, we're going to kind of see something of that happen, I believe, for the disciples as we look at another incident in Jesus' life. We're going through looking at different incidences of Jesus' life. We're going to look at another one today. And you've got to remember that he's always been with them since he called them to himself, these disciples. They've watched him. They've been with him. It's not two hours away. This is, they've been with him 24-7 every day. And this morning, I think we're going to see something of a key moment of revelation for them. We're going to look at what's revealed. Something of, number one, Jesus' true nature, which is that he's the Messiah. Number two, we're going to look at something of Jesus' real mission, why he came, which is the cross. And thirdly, we're going to see something of Jesus' required response. What is he looking for from them, which is discipleship? So those are the three areas we're going to look at as we break down this passage from Luke 9. So Luke 9, 18 to 27, if you've got uh, your Bibles or something you can read it, go for it. If not, it's not too tricky to get your heads around. Luke 9, 18 to 27. Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man, which is his way of referring to himself, the Son of Man, that's him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them, 
when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand what you are saying. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us not only yourself, but your plans, but also, Lord, in a way, how you want us to respond, what it is in our lives or our thinking that you want to speak to us about, whether to encourage or whether to challenge or whether to convict. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us. You would speak, you would shape us this morning as we study your word together. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's uh, look at Jesus' true nature, the Messiah. So those first few verses. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. So let's jump into this story, shall we? I love jumping into the Bible, getting into the story of it. And we find Jesus here is praying in private with his disciples. So he wasn't on his own. He was with his disciples. But he didn't have the crowds who always followed him and were with him whenever they could with him. So this is not a moment of public teaching and ministry. Clearly, what he wants to say and talk about in this particular moment is just with his 12 disciples, just with those closest to him. This is not a time to be proclaiming and explaining things while the crowds are gathered around. And you know, it's often in these private moments when it's just between Jesus and his disciples that he shares the most personal things, the most important things. It's often in these moments, it's like Jesus kind of speaks to them about what's going on, if you like, behind the scenes, why he did what he did, why he said what he said, what's really going on with the crowd, with the Pharisees. If you read the Bible, you notice it gives us a glimpse often of what's going on in Jesus' head, in his heart, behind the scenes. It's when he speaks to his disciples and explains to them what is going on, why he did that, why that person did what they did. It's the really important things, the personal things he gets to share, which I get because if you and I have got something personal to share, important to share, we're probably going to gather those around us that we know and love the most and tell them rather than just telling the first person that we bump into in the coffee shop. You know, that's what we do. We, 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 who, who we tell and when we tell them says something, and it's the same with Jesus. Whenever he is speaking to his disciples, and the Bible makes a point often of, of reminding us, no, no, he's on his own with his disciples. It's not just saying that for the sake of it. It's kind of getting our attention. Okay, Jesus has got something important to say, and we just need to register. Okay, he's speaking to just his disciples. There's something important probably coming up here. And he starts off by asking them, who do the crowds say he is? These hundreds, these thousands of people who gather when he preaches, when he ministers, when he heals, when he feeds. Who do they say I am? And the disciples reply, 
that really there are a kind of range of possibilities given. I mean, some say you're John the Baptist. You're the one who's going to come ahead of the Messiah, going to prepare the way, as it were. Some say you're Elijah, the most famous, maybe, of the Old Testament prophets. Others say, actually, no, you are, you are actually an Old Testament prophet, kind of come back to life. That's who you are. And there are a number of reasons why the crowds actually could have thought that Jesus was those people. It wasn't just that they'd plucked them out of nowhere. There were kind of scriptures that led them to maybe think that's who it was. They weren't right, but you can kind of understand why. But what's clear is that the crowds, though they're following Jesus, listening to him, learning from him, they can't agree who he is, and they don't actually know really who he is. I mean, I think they seem to know that he's something to do with God. You know what I mean? He's John the Baptist, Elijah the prophet. I mean, he's something. Yeah, he's not the pizza salesman. He's something to do with God. We got that. He's a religious man. He's come from God. But they don't know his true identity at all. And then Jesus turns this very same question to the disciples. All right. But who do you say? I am. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in this moment. I think this is a pin drop moment, by the way. Just think, all the things they've heard, all the things they've seen, all the things that have happened, God speaking out loud at Jesus' baptism, this is my son, whom I love. All the teaching that Jesus has given, all the miracles that they've seen the healings, the demons flee, people getting better, the miraculous provision, everything, all they've seen. There's a lot resting on the answer to this question. It's like Jesus is saying, look, with all you've learned about me, being with me day after day, 24-7, have you worked out who I am yet? And then we see it's Peter. It's nearly always Peter, isn't it? Nearly always Peter, it's part of Peter's character. (laughs) Now, we don't know explicitly if Peter is answering just for himself or as the kind of spokesperson for the disciples. The Bible doesn't actually say. It says he answers. I think actually he answers the question both for himself and as a kind of spokesperson for the disciples as a group. Because Jesus asked them as a group, who do the crowd, who do you say the crowd say I am? I think Peter now answers uh, kind of for himself and for them, but I'm not going to fall out with you over it. And he says, just two words, God's Messiah, God's Messiah. And that is the right answer. One of the commentaries that I read while I was studying this says that up to this point, only God and demons had declared that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. This is the first time that the disciples, a human being, confesses, this is who you are, Jesus. The key moment. It's the right answer. It's the right answer in that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promised one, the anointed one, the one whom God had spoken about through his prophets that one day would come and usher in God's kingdom. There were, in the Old Testament, lots of moments when God spoke through his prophets and said, oh, I'm going to send one, I'm going to send one, I'm going to be my Messiah. Ones like 
Ezekiel 37. And when it says the word David here, it doesn't mean King David. It means one's going to come a descendant of David. But if you think about Ezekiel 37, it says this. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws, be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Talking about not King David, but the Messiah who's going to come. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their number. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. It's just there's lots of parts of the Old Testament that talk about one day when the Messiah comes, all that kind of stuff is going to happen. That's what they were thinking of. So where the crowds had failed, actually, Peter and the disciples nailed Jesus' identity correctly. He's the Messiah. He's God's Messiah. He's the one that God said he would send. He's the promised one. He's going to come and save the people. He's going to do all those Old Testament prophecies that said one day, one day, God's going to send his Messiah. That's who he is. This is a massive tick for the disciples. Right answer. Sigh of relief. But actually, before you get too carried away and the disciples kind of go off high-fiving each other and heading down to Dunkin' Donuts for a bit of a treat, celebrating. Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. You think that's a bit strange? Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, which I think is more than a little confusing at first reading because at last they've correctly worked out and they've confessed who he actually is. Surely this is the very moment they, he should be encouraging them. Great, you've got it. Go to the crowd. Tell your fellow Israelites. No, he's not John the Baptist. No, he's not Elijah. He's definitely not a prophet that's kind of been raised from the dead and come back. It's not. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. But the reason I believe Jesus tells them not to tell other people that he's the Messiah is not because he isn't but it's because they still don't have the right understanding of what kind of Messiah he is going to be or how, as the Messiah, he is exactly going to be the saviour of God's people. I'll say that again. The reason why he tells them not to go and tell others is because at the moment, they don't have the right understanding of what kind of Messiah he is going to be of how he is actually going to achieve all the things that God said the Messiah would achieve. I think the disciples have grasped who Jesus is, but they don't fully get how he's going to achieve what God sent him to do, which is why Jesus says, don't go and tell people yet. They needed to have something in their understanding added to, which is why immediately... Next verse, he starts talking to them about how he, as the Messiah, is going to achieve what God promised his Messiah would accomplish. Let's read on. Verse 22, Jesus' real mission, the cross. 
having told them not to go and tell others, he says to them, Son of man, talking about himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Suffer? Rejected? Killed? These are not words or concepts I think that the disciples had in mind when they declared Jesus to be the Messiah. They would have, I think, been thinking more words of freedom. Freedom from oppression of those ruling over us. Victory. God's nation coming. God's people being raised up. Those are the kind of words and concepts, I think, that they would have had in mind when they heard the word Messiah. And Jesus needed them to understand that his mission as Messiah was to bring about spiritual reconciliation between sinful people and God, not a human revolution to overthrow the Roman Empire and usher in a time when the people of God would rule over other nations and on the earth under God. That's what he needed them to get. And actually, the way he was going to reconcile sinful men and women to God was by allowing them to nail him to a cross. And that on that cross, he was going to suffer at the hands of his father so that a price was paid sufficient that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus could be forgiven for their sins. And that he was, would hang on that cross until that was done and the very lifeblood literally was drained out of his life and he was dead. Trusting that God would raise him back to life after three days, which God did because he's a loving God, he's a just God, and that was the plan all along. But we'll look at that as we get into Easter. I don't think this was in their minds. The way of the cross, that was going to be Jesus' way. That was going to be the Messiah's way, the way of the cross. It was about surrender. It was about self-sacrifice. It was about laying down his life for a debt that people owed to God that they couldn't pay. The way of the cross was how Jesus, the Messiah, was going to save people and fulfill God's promises of old. It was going to be the way of the cross. The way of the cross. It was the way of the cross. And the disciples needed to understand that because they wouldn't have got there themselves. They weren't there themselves. They would never have got there themselves. I defy that any human being would get there themselves because it's so outrageous. It's so contrary that God would sacrifice himself to save us. Hang on a second. God made us. We messed up. God is now going to sacrifice himself to save us. It's outrageous. Scandalous. No human being would have got there. The disciples certainly didn't get there. The way of the cross. It's a plan that only God could have come up with. <laughs> when God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, I think this is one of his thoughts. That's not our thoughts. He's the only one that would come up with it, let alone the only one that could see it through. 
so outrageous. And yet, and yet, it was there in Scripture all along. So many of the same references that the disciples understandably took and went, yeah, yeah, Messiah, Messiah, Savior, Savior, kingdom, kingdom, yeah. Actually, also, if you read them, mm, talk about the way of the cross. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah, we're right back in the Old Testament now. I'll just read you some of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our firmities, carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Who could Isaiah mean? He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. What could that be about? By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When you see the cross, you understand, that's Jesus. But as the disciples and others read the Old Testament prophets, of course, they're kind of, they, they read it's there. They don't, can't really see, is the Messiah really going to, really? Really? They, they couldn't grasp it. And so Jesus needed his disciples, if you like, to add the way of the cross to their understanding that he was the disciples. He needed them to connect the two. To literally put them together so they could fully understand who he was and how he was going to achieve what was promised. Do you get that? So crucial that we see it. And it kind of leads us to our final point because actually Jesus is now going to call them to the same thing. So he needed them to understand that he was going the way of the cross because now he's going to call them to go the way of the cross. Point three, Jesus' required response, discipleship. Listen to what he says to them next. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Jesus defines what's expected of them in response to what he is going to do for them. Him going the way the cross has brought them is going to buy them forgiveness of sin, peace with God, adoption into his family, 
And in response, he now calls them to follow him in the way of the cross, which he wonderfully and neatly and challengingly describes as deny themselves, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And we'll come back to those three in a minute. Because put simply, you will not find a better description of being a disciple of Jesus in the entire scripture than those three little phrases. In fact, if you and I, even this week, just, just saying, okay, I'm going to deny myself, I'm going to carry my cross, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's discipleship right there. Right there. But just know, after giving them this call to follow the way of the cross, as Jesus followed the way of the cross, he actually gives them some further reasons and encouragements to do so. This made me smile while I was studying. And I don't study a lot while I smile, but this made me smile when I thought of it. Because when you think about it, Jesus, just the fact that what he's done is going is to give forgiveness, adoption as God's children, salvation. I mean, that should be enough, shouldn't it? I mean, if I give you a million quid and you ask for another 25 quid, I might be upset. All Jesus has given, right? Oh, it should just be enough, should it not? I mean, it's not like it's not quite a lot. But then, to me, it's like Jesus continues to speak into their kind of doubts, their fears, their kind of, is it really worth it? I'm imagining the disciples' face, and they're doing the math. What you've called us to, is it really worth it? I don't know, maybe that kind of stuff goes through our heads sometimes. We're faced with some difficult situations, the realities of life, some of the pull of this world, some of the seduction of ease, some of the lies of the devil telling you, don't do that, don't do that, go, go. Is it just me? In those kind of, actually, I think Jesus, Jesus is trying to help them. He's trying to speak into their kind of fears, doubts, wondering, is it worth it? And he starts by saying, look, though it appear that you might be losing your life, just like it's going to appear that I'm losing my life on the cross. Actually, if you go this way, you'll be saving your life. Just like on the cross, I saved many lives. What looked like a defeat turned out to be a victory. I think that's what Jesus is trying to encourage them with. Following the way of the cross may look and feel like death, but actually it's life. Jesus says it's life. And then he goes on to say that actually the life you gain, which of course is a life in God, a life with God, a life reconciled to God. He actually says it's more valuable than everything that you could get from the world all put together. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Imagine everything in the world. I mean everything from wisdom to power to money to status to mountains to oceans to adulation to worship. You know, all that is not worth your soul, your very self, says Jesus. And he explains why, because what he does is he puts their lives in the context of eternity and says, actually, one day when I come back after my death and resurrection, whatever you have gained in this world, it'll be worth nothing if you don't know me. If I'm ashamed of you on that day and you're ashamed of me, which is kind of Jesus' way of saying, if you haven't put your faith in me, if you don't know me, actually, it's all worthless. On that day, if we don't know him and he doesn't know us, it's worthless. If we're not owned by him and we don't own him, it's worthless. 
Like, I love what Dan said earlier. Yeah, we're owned by God. If we haven't understood and acknowledged what him following the way of the cross means for us and followed it as well, on that day we will be utterly lost. I don't think Jesus is trying to discourage his disciples. I think he's trying to help them. I think he's actually trying to encourage them. I think he's trying to say to them, if you're standing there wondering, is it worth giving up all this to follow you, Jesus? He basically says, anything that you might gain in this world for following me is worthless for what you will gain. I actually think he's really trying to encourage them. I think he's trying to get them to see that, yes, I'm calling you to follow my way, but my way is the right way and the best way. It's right for me, and it's right for you as my disciples. Let me just return and end by this description of Jesus' disciples. I won't be long. Three things. Number one, deny yourself. Deny yourself. I don't like that. Do you, anybody like denying themselves? I don't like denying myself. It cuts across what I want to do. It cuts across the spirit of this age that says don't deny yourself anything. Because deny yourself must mean there's some things that you would like to do, but God says don't do them, either because they're wrong in and of themselves or they're going to be harmful for you, they're going to be harmful for others, either immediately or in the long term. And so you don't do them. Denying yourself has this sense that I, I, I want to do this. I want to, I do want to, I want to do this, but, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to. And, you know, if there are things in our life that Jesus is calling us not to do, to deny ourselves, then just to let you know, I don't think they go away quietly on their own. That's not been my experience of things like that. They don't just disappear. You don't get older and they somehow go away. just want to say that if that's your hope. Things like that need to be taken, brought to the cross, and nailed there. <laughs> they need to be killed. They need to be killed. You need to understand, no, no, there is something greater than this desire to do this thing that God doesn't want me to do, and it's called Jesus, and I'm nailing that thing to the cross. It's the only way to deal with it. Next one, he says, is take up their cross daily. And I suppose for me, it's about, you know, doing stuff that actually we may find hard, burdensome, because God wants us to. Now, we know that Jesus, in the end, the cross led to joy, victory, salvation, but we mustn't miss the fact that the journey, as he literally had the cross on his back, was heavy, burdensome, full of trials, full of temptation. You know, if you don't have some understanding of suffering as part of your thinking about the Christian life, then you're going to get mightily shocked and rocked when it comes. Many Western Christians, myself included, I think, try to avoid suffering or facing up to suffering because we don't like it and we've been grown up in a culture that doesn't like it and tries to avoid it and tries to ignore that it's there and tries to pay its way out. Tries, no, but the doctor must be able to heal you, but they must be able to give you a drug, but they must be, you must be. No, sometimes there, there just isn't. Suffering is a part of life. And the Bible doesn't give all the answers. It doesn't avoid. What it does is it says, listen, I'm going to point you to one called Jesus who has suffered and has suffered just like you're suffering. In fact, he suffered more than you've suffered, and he'll help you in your suffering, and he'll set you the model and example. 
what the Bible does. Just because something is hard doesn't make it wrong. If God is calling us to carry our cross, then by definition, I suspect, it's going to be something that's not very easy. (laughs) But that doesn't make it wrong. It just means that there's an opportunity for, for God and for us to say, God, you've asked me to carry this. Now, will you help me? Will you enable me, God? And for God to help and to enable. The third one, follow me, I suppose. It sums them all up, really. Because it's not just about denying yourself and carrying your cross. I mean, that would lead a road to misery, really. There's no intrinsic worth in just not doing stuff you want to do and doing stuff that's hard, right? Some Christians have done that back in, they're just miserable. Legalistic, it's it's doing those things. Why? Because I'm following Jesus. Because actually, being his and being with him is worth more than the thing that I'm denying or the thing that I'm finding difficult with. It's the following Jesus. If this is what Jesus has called me, then he'll enable me. If this is the road you've called me to walk, Jesus, then I want to walk on the road with you and not go off on another road, Mark, comfort and ease, because you're not going to be there. You're going to be on this road. It is all about following Jesus. I was thinking, you know, today's Mother's Day. And actually, good mothering, like good fathering, like good parenting, it involves a lot of denying oneself (laughs) and carrying a few crosses and changing a few nappies. I mean, there is just some things that come with parenting where you have to do some of this kind of stuff. But of course, you do it. Why? Because there is great love and joy and blessing. It's not the whole story. It's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And in the same way, being Jesus' disciple does include some denying and some carrying. But it also involves great love, great joy, great blessing. Think about what is gained. It's what Jesus says. Actually, Jesus never kind of says, yeah, that'll be hard, you just need to do it. He kind of says, yeah, that's hard, but I'll be with you. (laughs) That's, that's, That's the way Jesus works. Yeah, it'd be difficult. Yeah, yeah. But guess what? I'll be with you. There's nothing wrong with looking at what is gained. And what is gained is to be known by Jesus, to be forgiven by God, to be loved by him, to have the same opportunity to walk in the way of the cross, to be owned by Jesus, to to know that what we have in him is more precious than anything else the world can offer. So my encouragement to us this week, today, tomorrow, is will we go the way of the cross? Will we deny ourselves, carry our cross daily, and follow him? It is, I believe, the very essence of being Jesus' disciple. I'm going to hand back to Tim in a second, but I just want to say and offer, if anybody would like to be prayed for, to be filled with the Holy Spirit this morning, whether for the first time, or the tenth time, or the hundredth time, then during the worship time, let's pray.